Was the immigration crisis stoked to promote a new American union? I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. So let's launch off of this headline. Harris at Summit of the Americas doubles down on root causes explanation for migrant crisis. There's a subheadline there that says there were more than 234,000 migrant encounters in April, a massive increase from numbers last year. Now, I think the numbers were down because both that Rule 42 and just COVID generally brought that down. So it's a little bit of a false comparison. But they're clearly trying to say that migration is up. Immigration is up. The border crisis is raging. You would think that they would want to distance from that because people blame the Biden administration for it. And it's about to get worse because they're suspending that 42 rule that was like a COVID emergency measure to turn back, I guess, asylum seekers, if I recall correctly. So I was starting to think about this. As I mentioned in my last show, I wanted to look at the Summit of the Americas thing because there's some pushback as to not every head of state showed up. Some sent their foreign ministers, Mexico most notably, a little bit of an embarrassment for Biden. It seemed to me that as we enter into or try to enter into this two-block world, the kind of Russia-China axis and the rest of the world alliance, let's say, we better be sure, and I hate to say we because I'm kind of talking about the Western oligarchs, they, big T, they need to be sure that the block is going to be coherent, that people are going to adhere to them in their block, or at least they're going to be able to get enough people into the block, enough countries into the block that represent enough markets into the block, that it will be a good enough deal for what they're doing. Because I think they're giving up this idea of total world domination. I think they realize they're really not going to be able to dominate Russia and China, and they don't want to share so they feel like, I think my theory is that they're, they, and I'm saying specifically, I'm looking at the Rand Corporation, U.S. Army document that we were talking about. Some of the stuff that's coming out of Europe seems like not everybody is on board, that it's kind of a U.S. run thing, which I do think is significant. I think that the U.S. is kind of, and probably with the U.K., breaking away a little bit from Europe. And they've got to get Europe in line, and they have to get the Western Hemisphere in line. And I've thought since the beginning of the Biden administration, especially when I looked into that horrible assassination in Haiti and found that that Moise, who was assassinated, had said that there was a U.S. run attempted coup in February 2021. So right after Biden took office, there was an attempted coup in Haiti that the Haitian guy arrested people for and attributed it to the U.S., including some leaked audio of former U.S. officials seeming to plot that very thing. So I thought, wow, I guess, you know, it looks like we're taking a backseat when it comes to China, but it also looks like we're trying to really flex our muscles in the Western Hemisphere to, like, assert what is called hegemony, like regional hegemony, like the U.S. is going to be the big player here, and there must be some value in it. So I found it really interesting what Kamala Harris opened the summit with, she said, we gather today in pursuit of a shared goal, colon, she's talking to the, the Americas in LA this week, to build a prosperous and inclusive future 
for the people of the Western Hemisphere. To build a prosperous and inclusive future for the people of the Western Hemisphere. So she's defining the region right there for sure. And I think that what they're talking about, because as I looked at what was on the agenda for the Summit of the Americas, like even it comes down to the websites, like the websites look like they all have the same template, like it's a WordPress theme. And it came basically straight out of the World Economic Forum, Davos, the Rockefeller Foundation kind of shares that vibe. Any of these big philanthropy things, they've got these pretty impressive websites and and they're very deep and they have some similarities. So when I looked at the thing for the summit, it totally screamed Davos, build back better, reset stuff, even to the point where it had a separate kind of conference or program for CEOs and another one for youth. So they really manipulate the youth, just like the World Economic Forum does, and they try to get the CEOs on board because what I think is really going on here is, you know, I call the World Economic Forum thing like this backdoor fascism, and I think it is. I mean, it is, it's almost beyond fascism. Fascism where, like, the government uses its power to benefit its crony corporations. It's like the corporations are leading the way in making policy because they have so much power. There are so few competitors at that global scale that they can say stuff like, we're exiting Russia and really cripple Russia and then act like they and their shareholders are pressuring governments to impose sanctions and, well, we can't do this on our own. You need to make all these little guys these strike breakers not do it too so it's a it's like a a revolving door but i think like another way of thinking about it is the kind of mercantilism it's almost like they're getting in there to these in this case the less developed countries and trying to create new markets fully penetrate markets. And I'm going to get into that a little bit. I've got some detail to hang on that. But one more thing that goes to that whole two-block thing, the thing we talked about in the last show about geoeconomics and how the declining power, the great power that's sunsetting, tends to be more militarily powerful. And the one that's ascending tends to have the economic promise. And I feel like what we're doing in by making this idea of geoeconomics, where using economic strategies under the guise or with the excuse of it being a national security issue, puts moralistic and militaristic language and vibes into economic decisions that aren't good enough standalone from an economic point of view, they have to have a bunch of baggage attached. And I think that's what part of this is. And that's why immigration is a big part of the argument. So Kamala Harris, one thing she's been tasked with is promoting this idea of the root causes of the immigration crisis need to be addressed. And it's in the interest of the American people, the American taxpayer, to make sure that we drive private investment and influence the policies in all the countries in our hemisphere, because that's the only way we're going to stop the immigration. And I disagree with that. And I'm going to tell you my libertarian position on immigration and all the nuances. And I'm not talking about just theoretically, I'm talking about in this real situation. But the way Kamala Harris talks about it, first of all, she talks about why people want to leave their countries. And she says it's climate change, 
violence, poverty, and economic insecurity. And then her solutions include investing in these countries, both with taxpayer money and by getting the private sector to chip in. And one thing that I noticed, she announced that the Northern Triangle, I think it's Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. She said that in total, she's ginned up over $3 billion of investment in those countries from the private sector to do three things, create jobs, among other things, but the three things she highlighted, create jobs, increase access to the internet, and bring the poor into the formal banking system. So if you can't see how all of that stuff serves the globalist agenda, and if you want to say there's now two globes, <laughs> like I know it's not really true, but if you want to say that it's like two blocks, we can still call it globalism, Western hemisphere globalism, Western globalism. But that's uh, the create jobs thing. In, in my mind, when you quote create jobs by building factories, yes, it does bring people out of poverty. It does really help. But there can be longer term implications, which is... They now have no autonomy. They are now dependent on the bigger system. So sometimes it might be worth taking it a little slower if you hope for any autonomy in the long run. Because to the extent there are non-aligned countries who don't automatically fall into America's shadow, and, and in one of those, in the RAND document, it said that Russia may retaliate for what we're doing in Ukraine by trying to get into backroads on some of the countries here in our backyard. So how do you get everybody to get behind the U.S.? Well, carrots and sticks. You can see uh, what happened to Moise, who was the president of Haiti, who clearly wasn't getting in line. But you can also see that they're basically bribing people, and not just with this private stuff, but also with big government money. And I have a quote from the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago about using the supply chain crisis to bring business into Mexico. It says, while the quality of fabrics and labor availability in the region still lag behind those of China, companies benefit from the proximity to American consumers as well as lower tariff rates under a U.S. free trade agreement. The Biden administration is also spending billions of dollars to develop the local economy and attract private sector investment in the region, a step officials hope will reduce migration to the U.S. So it's all there. They're spending the taxpayer dollar to directly invest in the local economy, and that will definitely impact the policies. They're using it to get incentives to private industry for investing there. And they're using migration as the excuse, which means they probably ginned up the migration in the first place. And this all reminds me of when I was reading about the North American Union that Heidi Cruz was a part of. She, uh, William Weld, I think, penned it with somebody else when he was at the C Council of Foreign Relations, which he probably still is. But Heidi Cruz was like a junior member, and she was one of the signatories to this North American Union proposition. And that was really shocking. And this, so when I read this stuff, she's like, okay, Kamala Harris is like, we want to bring foreign investment in here for these limited purposes. We want to make like an economic block. Don't be mistaken. This is going to be 
a political block. There are going to be policy impact on this. It brings in that whole globalism so that the the corporations that can do business easily in this new environment are going to be the ones that follow like the ESG standards and all the other kind of globalist stuff. And that shuts out startups or entrepreneurs who can't put all those apparatuses of compliance in there. I mean, and if your calling in life is to be such an entrepreneur, or you don't want to work in a factory, or you would like to somehow maintain your own traditional uh, like farm or whatever, this makes it really hard. It makes it really hard, even to the point where if they absorb all the supplies. But what the North American Union involved was really scary stuff. And I don't believe for a second that this is off the table. I think they're just repackaging it and maybe even just making it bigger. But one of the things they talked about was having mechanisms to make sure that all the environmental and labor laws were consistent from Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. And if they weren't, that they should level up to the most restrictive and that they wanted an organization. And they actually quote this in the CFR document about the North American Union that it wanted to be like the Bilderberg Group or the Verkund Conference, which I'm not familiar with, which helps parliaments and and it would be, in this case, Congress, figure out how to get to on the same page policy-wise. Now, if I understand correctly, it's unconstitutional to be involved in a foreign body that seeks to influence domestic legislation. And of course, it's totally unconstitutional to engage in legislation above our borders. But there were a lot of things like a biometric pass to open up the borders that if you just have a universal American border pass with biometric data, you can cross. There was a lot of kind of freaky stuff in here. Interoperability of like military, which again, like if you, if you want to count on oath keepers say now, even if that, that institution isn't what it seems, I don't know, but the idea that U.S. Uh, law enforcement, whether you want to talk about it as like in a military way or police, is made of people who don't even speak your language, it's going to be easier to get them to or don't understand the fundamental U.S. constitutional laws and rights. It's going to be easier to get them to violate it. So this stuff is kind of dangerous. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Because it reminds me of that. And and to the extent that what Harris is talking about is something that's totally Biden-related, uh, there were definitely seeds of this in, in the Trump era. Because I was I remember when the Zelensky thing came down, when Trump supposedly was withholding aid to Zelensky because he wanted a prosecutor fired, and he got impeached for that. I dug in a little bit and found that Trump was actually withholding aid from some countries. The Ukraine thing, I didn't, I wasn't convinced about, but this Northern Triangle, I did find Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. He was withholding aid until they agreed to certain foreign investment in their countries to uh, ostensibly stem the migration problem. And I immediately at that time thought that what they were trying to do, and I figured it was because Trump was a builder, maybe he knows builders, and that those were his cronies that at a certain point you can't, you just, we have some resistance to like the FEMA camps here, you know, but those are construction projects. The wall's a construction project. And maybe this is just uh, more of that kind of mercantilism that you see with the vaccines, for example, where the government is opening up foreign markets for big pharma to sell 
these vaccines into. It reminds me of the opium wars. It's that they open up markets to push their products into after their own markets are saturated and can even use your taxpayer dollars to foster it. I mean, it is really convoluted. Whether you call it mercantilism or fascism or what, it's not the American way. Now, some of these countries, like the countries that were snubbed, I guess Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela and then Mexico and some other countries. Uh, so Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela weren't invited, I guess, if I recall correctly. And then some of the countries in protest that the presidents didn't come or the heads of state didn't come. They sent their foreign ministers, though. So it wasn't a complete boycott. And Obrador of Mexico did that. And his lip service is that he or what he says, and I, I don't know him well enough to know how authentic this is. Maybe it is playing both sides against the middle. Maybe they still want to join the other block. I don't know. But the way they talk about it, he does not like the Davos thing. He calls that whole corpo governmental continuum there of rich people, I guess, is how he looks at it in rich countries as hypocritical that they fly around in private jets and still cry climate change and that there's just too great wealth disparity and the poor not being considered. So it seems to me that he's reflecting some Marxist sentiments. And I'm no fan of that, of course. But at least Marxists can see fascists, you know, no fascists when they see them. And understands potentially the risk of allowing all of their wealth, all of their, I guess, their people to become dependent on foreign companies and and like a mono-skilled cu- culture. Because I think about that. I think about like the, that the factories, if you go in there and, you know, division of labor is really a very difficult way to make a living if you ever need to assert liberty. So I've thought this, like for so many years, I've been arguing for liberty to, as a, you know, my compromise is let's restore the Bill of Rights. And when COVID came down and I realized that I did not have a single chicken, I don't know how how valuable it is to talk about liberty in a theoretical framework if you don't have any way to exercise autonomy. So I'm starting to rethink the way because, you know, when they build these factories in those other countries, they're subsidized. We go in there and subsidize them. So it's not like it's a free market situation. It's a manipulation that's used in our name. So they say, oh, well, we have a migration problem. We have to, for the interests of the American taxpayer, it's a good use of your money. And then they take our money and they and they use that. And it does crowd out startups that maybe aren't as efficient as these outside companies, but they might be a little more efficient if they are close to home, if they are emerging from inside that country. And, you know, I'm not advocating that Obrador use their taxpayer dollars to foster domestic industry, although I do understand why people take that position sometimes. But I can also understand why he's not welcoming this outside uh, influence or uh, it's it seems to me like a big trap and the whole covid thing and the supply chain issues is what set them up it set them up for this trap because now they're super vulnerable because everybody the poorer the country the more it was hurting by this shutdown and then they're said they're told that there's oh well you're vulnerable now it's worse than ever but you also have this opportunity that emerged from there because of all the, the supply chain interruptions and those two as i've mentioned seem totally manufactured so i did want to say just 
point out my position on uh, immigration as a libertarian in this real world situation, because they're using the immigration problem as an excuse for all of this stuff, for this, what I'm calling regional globalism. And I think that it's a moral hazard because they're promoting the migration crisis in order to use it as an excuse for something that they want to do anyway. But if they, if you really look at the migration issue, she says root causes. And when I first heard her say that, I was like, surely she's not actually going to address the root causes. So I'm going to tell you what I think are the causes and what I think the solutions might be. First of all, I think we should have free, free society. So you, you can, all this would go away. You could absolutely restore the absolute right to work and travel if you didn't have all the barriers to a free society that have been put up by our country. So I think she's right that in part, you do have to look at why they're leaving their own homes, right? They People don't want to. It's not reasonable to think, I mean, yes, okay, maybe you're born in the wrong culture, but most people are a product of their culture. They don't want to leave. As Kamala Harris says, they don't want to leave grandma. But I would say that a lot of the political and economic injustice that these people suffer are a result of foreign interference. Either we bribe governments to go our way, which I have told you many times how we have. There's lots of evidence of that. Or we can even just bomb them. I mean, we bomb countries. We create refugees. We create problems. We d- bomb infrastructure. And then we have some kind of responsibility to deal with it, like Afghanistan, Ukraine. We take those refugees and we're like, well, I mean, it's creating the problem. Uh, and then there's also just that there are universal barriers to work and travel, to trade. And as there are more of those around the world, if we have porous borders, more people are going to push into those borders. Whereas just free markets and pricing mechanisms, prices for labor, prices for resources, as as labor froze, flows freely, the marginal value of that labor gets reflected in the price that is paid for it. And then the natural ebb and flow will allow it to push to where it's needed more. But as some of those avenues of flow get barricaded off, they're going to flow more into the places where the borders are porous. So you kind of want to be a beacon to the world of liberty and hope that the rest of the world follows suit. But you can't just do it all at once because this country isn't big enough to absorb like all the, all the poor. But why do we absorb so much of it? Like, okay, the poorest borders are a function of, I would say, a lot of political value from having voters come in who don't really understand that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, these fundamental laws really aren't supposed to be voted away. But we do vote them away. The Tenth Amendment is totally infringed upon by congressional laws that are unconstitutional. There's a lot of things that the vote seems to give more power to the legislators, the executives, than really the Constitution allows for. And because of that, People who want to influence the vote, they want people to come in from socialist countries or countries where they don't really understand why they had problems at home and bring that bad voting in. But why is it that immigrants who want to work and travel are automatically have to become citizens and then have the right to vote? Why not just allow work and travel rights? And I mean, would it be so awful to not give them the right to vote 
until the second generation or until 10 years or until they could actually engage in discourse about the political processes in English. I mean, I'm not a big fan of like policy manipulation and accommodating bad big policy with these little details, but we do tie the right to work and travel to the right to vote. And then we expand the importance of voting. So for me, that's like a big red flag. They're obviously doing that is why that that's a moral hazard too. And then the biggest thing for me is that because we have minimum wage laws, because we have labor laws, um, even because we have indiscriminate college subsidies that allow for college college to be paid for without caring about the net present value of the degree that the government's subsidizing, you have a really distorted labor market. So you have a floor of on the bottom of people who are are can't work below minimum wage and will get welfare because they they just aren't uh, valuable enough to work at the minimum wage. And when you do it that way, it opens up this whole need for black market labor. But you also have all these people who went to college who really college wasn't worthwhile and they're kind of overqualified for those jobs as well. And then then you have problems there too. So you have a really distorted labor market. And I just, I feel like there are numerous ways to solve the immigration problem, including stop interfering with foreign governments, stop bombing foreign countries, eliminate these labor laws, welfare, college subsidies, all of that stuff, restore absolute private property rights so people could, if they wanted to have closed communities, they should be able to have them. Otherwise, they have to reach out to the national borders to try to have um, some control over who comes in and who doesn't come in. And uh, we all have different opinions about who we want to associate with. And you do have the right to associate with whom you want. And private property helps you enforce that. And I think voting is too powerful. It's, it's unconstitutionally powerful. And tying the right to work and travel to the right to vote is a double whammy there. So I would, I would want to pull back on that. So that's my little libertarian. <laughs> immigration analysis. I actually wrote that up once many years ago, and I will put that in the show notes as well. Uh, I will be at my mom's. I'm leaving tomorrow. So I'm going to be there for a while. I'm not 100% sure I'll be able to do deep dives next week, but I will always post something to the feed at 5 a.m. Eastern, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's my posting schedule, 5 a.m. Eastern, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'll always put something in there. It might be some buddy dives where I talk to other podcasters or I'm a guest on somebody else's show. It might be uh, a dive master interview with somebody who is a subject matter expert or a principal thought leader that I've had the pleasure of interviewing. But I will put something, whether it's a deep dive or one of those two conversations, something will always be in the feed Monday, Wednesday and Friday from me. And I do think that it's important to spend time, like real living time with our old people. So, you know, I, I agree with Kamala. We do want to spend time with grandma. Don't want to leave her if for no other reason, because you want that for you. You want that intergenerational community for yourself when you need it. And uh, I've known people, you know, in the late stages of life who actually knew a couple of people facing jail time who said that what was really important to them was the relationships and, you know, spending time with those people. So I'm doing it. 
I'm excited to hang out with my mom. I hope you will be patient if my posting is, uh, is a little bit of a grab bag. And I have a great big shout out. I haven't done a shout out in a while and I haven't had too many calls to action for the propaganda report community. But, uh, today I want to do this for a very, very good friend of the show who has asked for your help. So we are going to try to get as many votes as possible for a Texas softball outfielder who is running to be voted the best. So vote for Jody Epperson, Jody Epperson, E-P-P-E-R-S-O-N. It's at scorebooklive.com slash Texas. Uh, you might have to search, but I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the link in the show notes, top of the show notes. And I'm also pinning it to the top of my Twitter feed at Monica Perez show. I don't even think you have to actually have a Twitter account to be able to click through and vote for Jody Epperson, because even if she doesn't win, it would be super awesome for her to get lots and lots of warm fuzzies from the propaganda report community. So hopefully, uh, that will work. And thanks so much. I will talk to you next week. I am Monica Perez. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.